Testing one, two, three. Am I making this pop? Is it suspiciously poppy, popular in here? Yeah, yeah, yep, that's poppy enough. Wonderful. Yep. If that sounds good, then we can get cracking. Are you recording? Should we go? Yeah, go. We're recording. It's urology. It's not rocket science. It's not even brain surgery. I can't believe the radiologist missed that. It stood out like dogs. You've got to have a sense of humour when you look at genitals, really. Bend over and assume the position. Bladder, most beautiful organ in the body. Talking urology with Dr. Joseph Iskia and Dr. Nathan Lorenchuk. A podcast series supported by Ipsen. I'm Joseph Iskia. I'm Nathan Lorenchuk. And we're Talking Urology, where we discuss the landmark urological papers and chat to the authors to get some insights into their fantastic studies. We aim to help doctors develop a deeper understanding of the literature to ensure we apply the right evidence to the right patient. Today, we are talking with John Yaxley, a urologist from Brisbane who is the lead author on one of the most important papers to come out of Australia in recent years, entitled Robot-Assisted Laparoscopic Prostatectomy versus Open Radical Retropubic Prostatectomy, Early Outcomes from a Randomised Controlled Phase 3 Study. This was published in The Lancet in July 2016. And Nathan, it's hard to recall a recent paper that has generated a more lively discussion. Since the first reported robot-assisted laparoscopic prostatectomy by Binder and Kramer in 2001, there's been a rapid adoption of this technology, where the red dots on the global map representing hospitals with robots has spread across the globe like a killer virus outbreak in a B-grade disaster movie. And like a B-grade disaster movie, there seems to have been little regard for the facts or the evidence in our case. Almost overnight, the robot has usurped the crown as the gold standard technique for separating a man from his prostate based on good marketing, excitement, and the love of all things shiny. But do the numbers stack up? I agree, Nathan. It seems more electrons have been wasted discussing the economics of the robot than have ever left the sun. But today, we want to look closely at the hard fact of the only successful randomised trial of patient benefits and outcomes, and try to ascertain once and for all, is the robot any better? To answer this question, you're going to need two of the greatest minds in prostate cancer management. Unfortunately, they couldn't make it. So instead, you're stuck with Nathan and me. But fortunately, we do have one of the leading lights and lead author, John Yaxley, to help us dig deeper into this paper. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking. I'm John Yaxley. I'm one of the open surgeons. I performed the open surgery in the randomized trial of open versus robotic prostatectomy, and I was the lead author in the Lancet paper. John, thank you for joining us. This paper was essential. There is a lack of high-quality evidence for robot-assisted laparoscopic prostatectomy. Before this study, the published literature comprised non-randomised longitudinal studies of robotically-assisted and open prostatectomies alone or collated in meta-analyses. The study aimed to assess clinical and quality-of-life outcomes in radical retropubic prostatectomy compared with robot-assisted laparoscopic prostatectomy. I want to go back to how this trial started, because one of the great things about it is that nobody else has ever been able to achieve it. John gives us some insights into how our sunburnt friends in Queensland were able to succeed where all others have failed. Queensland started late. We didn't have a robot. And in 2009, the question was still asked, is robotic surgery going to give you better outcomes than open surgery? And the best scientific evidence is a level one trial. So we had the opportunity to do a randomized trial because our hospital supported us to buy a robot specifically designed with the idea of doing a randomized trial. That's why I got the robot to do the randomized trial. And so the, the reason to do the trial was to find the truth. Where does a robot and open prostatectomy fit with respect to primary outcomes of continence, erections, and a cure, i.e. in positive margins or later in biochemical failure, and what are the potential benefits of the minimally invasive robotic surgery. 
That sounds like a reasonable deal, and so a study was designed to enrol men aged 35 to 70 with newly diagnosed clinically localized prostate cancer who had chosen surgery as their primary treatment. They were randomly assigned to receive either robot-assisted laparoscopic prostatectomy or radical retropubic prostatectomy. One surgeon did all the robot cases and one surgeon did all the open cases. Wow, Nathan, let me stop you there and let's jump right to one of the biggest talking points in the debates and blogs around this paper the one surgeon for each arm design, and particularly the perceived difference in experience. Let's get John's take on it. What you need in a trial, if you're comparing technologies, is you need competent surgeons that are well-trained and get good outcomes. Royal Brisbane didn't have a robot. To start a multi-surgeon trial would have been to introduce bias against robotic surgery because it would have been a robotic training curve trial versus an experienced robotic surgeon and an experienced open surgeon. And that brings into the point that we were able to get the most experienced open surgeon at Royal Brisbane, which was me, and compare him to the most experienced robotic surgeon in Queensland. And to make sure the surgeon in the trial who was robotic was experienced, we sent Jeff off to be trained overseas. And without disrespecting a laparoscopic fellowship in the United Kingdom, following that, Jeff went to do two years of training in the robotic center. And he worked with Vip Patel for two years. And I don't think you can question when a center does 800 to 1,000 radical prostatectomies a year, so Jeff's exposed as a fellowship trainee to up to 2,000 cases, that the actual volume and the number of cases you do under supervision of one of the world's best robotic surgeons, to come back from that, you've got to be a well-trained surgeon. And then after that, Jeff then does 200 cases before we start the trial, and Vip Patel sent our center up. Vip actually came to Brisbane and set the center up. And during the period of the trial, Jeff Coghlan did more robotic surgery in three of the four years than any other surgeon in Australia. Another 800 on top of the 200 before, on top of two years of high volume fellowship, as well as robotic partial assisted nephrectomies, as well as robotic pyeloplasties, as well as robotic cystectomies. You've got a well-trained robotic surgeon compared against a well-trained open surgeon, and that took away the bias against robotic surgery if we had multiple surgeons. Okay. So Jeff sounded pretty experienced and can tell the difference between Da Vinci's two great works, the Mona Lisa and the XI. The primary outcomes were urinary function and sexual function at six weeks, 12 weeks and 24 months and immediate oncologic outcome, particularly positive surgical margin rates. Study investigators involved in data analysis were blinded to each patient's condition. In addition, a blinded central pathologist reviewed the biopsy and radical prostatectomy specimens. It sounds like everyone was blind, just like a traditional Australian Christmas. Secondary endpoints included intraoperative events, postoperative complications, pain scores, bleeding complications, intensive care unit admissions, and length of hospital stay. This paper reports the early outcomes of all these endpoints at six weeks and 12 weeks. The study initially aimed to recruit 400 men, but the trial was stopped early after 300 men. Let's hear from John about how the trial was powered and run. One of the criticisms of the paper has been that it was underpowered to detect differences in these key outcomes. John? We had a delta of 0.05, a confidence interval of 90%, with a power to predict a moderate difference effect with a size sample of 400. That was providing we kept 70% of the patients in the trial. So at the 75% trial recruitment, which is once we'd done over 300 patients, we had already predetermined to have an independent data committee look at the outcome, blinded to the type of surgery, and then make a decision on whether to continue the trial to 400 or cease the trial early. And after the independent data committee assessment, the trial was ceased. 
So the trial was stopped due to futility, with around 150 men in each arm. With regards to the primary outcomes at 6 weeks and 12 weeks post-surgery, there was no significant difference in the urinary function scores and the sexual function scores. From an oncological viewpoint, there was fewer positive margins on the open group, 15 men, i.e. 10%, compared with the robot group, 23 men, which makes 15%. Analyses show that these rates did not differ significantly. Well, there you go. The robot is no better. I'm done. I'm going. Now, hang about, Joseph. Let's look at some of the secondary endpoints where there were definite and important differences in favour of the robot group. The duration of surgery was 30 minutes short in the robot group compared to the open group. Furthermore, men in the robot arm were less likely to have an intraoperative event, had a third of the blood loss, 400 ml versus 1.3 litres, and less likely to get a post-op blood transfusion. There were also benefits in the robot arm for less early post-operative pain at 24 hours and one week time points, but not at six weeks or 12 weeks after surgery. The robot had a reduced length of hospital stay of 1.55 days compared with 3.27 days in the open arm, and the rate of unplanned intensive care unit admission was zero in the robot arm and two for open. Nathan, it reminds me of the great Monty Python sketch about the Romans. Sure, the robot has meant less operating time, less pain, less blood loss, less hospital stay and less ICU admissions, but what has the robot done for us? You should go Google that, what have the robots done for us, on YouTube and enjoy a reimagining of the classic sketch. Joseph, how you jest, but don't forget that these are all short-term issues and in the end, what really matters is cancer control, potency and continence, which were all the same. So is that the death knell for the robot? But if you look at the primary outcomes of other surgical procedures, so if I was going to have my gallbladder removed, the primary outcome of removing, if your, if your endpoint is for gallbladder removal, cholecystectomy is total and safe removal of the gallbladder, well then a laparoscopic procedure and an open procedure are equal in their safe and total removal of the gallbladder. But I won't have my gallbladder removed with an open case in 2017 because I know of the minimally invasive advantage of laparoscopic surgery. That will be similar in the long term with, with robot versus open surgery. But at the moment, the outcome that you really, that patients want, particularly are pure continence and erections, it's pick your surgeon at the three month mark until we know the data with a two year publication. Everyone knows that as time passes, urinary and sexual function can continue to improve. So the key question is whether or not the data will change after two years of analysis. I asked John if he believes it will. We don't know. I keep an open mind. The reality is no one knows. And we're blinded to collection of data. We don't collect the data. We're independent of that. But what the trial has shown with level one evidence is there is less intraoperative bleeding, even with the soul saver. There's less risk of perioperative complications due to blood loss, less admissions to intensive care because of cardiovascular instability earlier discharge from hospital and less pain for at least one week postoperatively. So there is positive level one outcomes in favour of robotic surgery in the trial. Since we first recorded this with John, the two-year results paper has come out in Lancet Oncology in July 2018. And for those of you who don't want to know the ending to The Sixth Sense or this paper, turn off now. Because Bruce Willis was dead from the start and there is no difference in urinary or sexual function between the robot and open at 6, 12 or 24 months. Sorry to all the Haley Joel Osmond fans out there. This publication was too soon to pick up on bladder neck contracture rates and they are not reported in the 24 month update. One thing even the most skeptical roboticists have noticed is that their bladder neck contractures have almost completely disappeared. 
I agree. I don't know in our trial bladder neck contracture will be a major issue. I know personally as a surgeon that's done a lot of robotic prostatectomies, I can't think of a bladder neck contracture. And so the robotic bladder neck contracture rate is low across the board. As far as bladder neck contracture in my open cohort, it's not something that's prevalent. And I think that relates to technique. And I put 12 sutures in my anastomosis. So I put a suture in every o'clock. So there's 12 hours in the clock at open. And bladder neck contracture is a technique. If you have urinary leak and you get peri-anastomotic fibrosis, in my opinion, you'll have an increased instance of getting a bladder neck contracture. And in the trial, the catheter was removed at the same time, I think seven point something days, and then no difference in cystogram leak rates. So I think when you're paying attention to technique, and it's all about attention to technique, you will decrease your bladder neck contracture rate with open surgery. But even so, there will be, in my opinion, a higher probability of bladder neck contracture than open operation in a robot. But I don't expect to find it to be a major issue in this trial. There is one that I know of early on, but again, we'll wait for the data to see what the two-year figures show. And the two-year figures will be a minimum two years. It'll be more than five-year follow-up in some men. 12 sutures. I don't know anyone doing that. Maybe we won't see a difference in bladder neck contracture rate after all. So do we need another trial or a bigger trial to answer the question? From a research point of view, the more trials you get, the better. The ultimate trial would be a multi-centre, multi-surgeon trial, providing the surgeons that are included in the study reach a standard of competence. And to me, it's not numbers that make competence, it's outcomes. So you need to make sure the surgeons in your trial are all competent, but it will be hard to recruit. We were lucky once the technology is disseminated and once the impression to the surgeons and the community are is that the newer technology is better than the old technology, it'll be very hard to recruit. Whereas we had a technology starting for the first time and we did the randomized study at the start of introduction of the technology into our community. And so I suppose a message for future randomized trials is start your randomized trial early in the introduction of a new technology, providing your surgeon is trained in that technology before it's disseminated that the opinion, which is probably the lowest level of scientific evidence is personal opinion. Once personal opinion is that one technology is better, then your randomization process is hard to achieve. Some sage advice on doing research early. I think we are getting better at doing surgical research and maybe this trial gives us hope that it can be done well. So what is John's take home message after all of that? Well, I think the takeaway message from the trial is just the outcomes of the trial. The outcome with respect to our primary objectives, which is continence, erectile function, and margin status is equivalent, providing you've got a well-trained surgeon. So I think the most important thing in the long term is to pick a surgeon that you know is well-trained, has got good surgical techniques rather than numbers, so his technique is good, and someone you trust and have rapport with. In the long term, with respect to whether one's better, we'll just have to wait and keep an open mind until the two-year data comes out as to whether even in that scenario, a well-trained surgeon will get better outcome in the long term, whereas it hasn't been shown in the short term. Final question, a bit of a cheeky one. Does John still do open radical prostatectomies? No, so I've converted to robotic surgery because of the fact that I get the same outcomes with my robotic surgery with the advantages of minimally invasive surgery and a third advantage that my back is a lot less painful at the end of a day's operating. Good point on the surgeon comfort aspect, which has been lost in all the noise, but unfortunately beyond the scope of this trial. A really excellent paper. We really enjoyed picking John's brain. We've been talking urology today with John Yaxley. We still have some great podcasts coming up. Montorsi's landmark penile rehab paper and Nick James talking stampede. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. You can contact us with questions, corrections or updates at talkingurology at gmail.com. You've been listening to Talking Urology Podcast with Joseph Iskier and Nathan Laurentia. 
Written by Mark Quinlan and Joseph Iskia. Produced by Joseph Iskia and Cara Webb. And proudly supported by Ibsen. Put the A in ADT. This has been Talking Urology with Dr. Joseph Iskia and Dr. Nathan Lorenchuk. A podcast series supported by Ibsen.